174 days ago, I became the first Democratic woman ever to represent the state of Oklahoma in Congress, and that is all about each and elections of 2018 saw Democrats retake the U.S. House of Representatives, picking up 40 seats across the country, including in Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District, which was labeled by some as the biggest upset of the election. Republican Steve Russell had lost his re-election bid to Kendra Horn, who took advantage of changing demographics in parts of Oklahoma City and deployed a successful ground game in suburban communities that had long been Republican strongholds. Today, headed into the 2020 election, Horn is the incumbent with a sizable war chest, but she isn't abandoning her underdog energy, especially as a slate of Republican candidates have pledged to emerge from their primary and retake the only Democratic seat in the state. On this week's episode of Listen Frontier, we take a closer look at the 5th Congressional District race, including a conversation with Horn and with State Senator Stephanie Bice a Republican candidate who many believe has the best chance to upset Horn in the general election. I'm Ben Felder, and this is Listen Frontier, a podcast exploring the journalism of the frontier and featuring conversations with those on the front lines of some of Oklahoma's most important stories. It's February 23rd, a Sunday evening, and inside Oklahoma City's Tower Theater, an energetic crowd has gathered for the official kickoff of Kendra Horn's 2020 re-election campaign. Several Democratic lawmakers from the Oklahoma City Council and state legislature addressed the crowd in preparation for Horn, including State Representative Forrest Bennett, a South Oklahoma City Democrat who said Horn had changed the way Democrats viewed themselves in Oklahoma. Let's just take a, a moment and pause and think about the fact that two years ago, it was those of us in this room who believed in a campaign that no one across the country thought could do it. And now here we are, kicking it off for another two years. And uh, in this red, red state for the party that I love, she has made a huge, huge difference. Because this room, because, let's be honest, this room, uh, you know, four years ago wouldn't have been full. Uh, but because we had one determined woman who knew that we could get it done, we're here today. This year's kickoff crowd may be bigger, but Horn supporters say it's going to take just as much work, if not more, to win again in 2020. After her kickoff rally, Horn spoke with me backstage, and we'll hear that interview later on in this episode. But first, let's take a closer look at the 5th Congressional District, why Horn won in 2018, and what is similar and different about this year's contest. On election day in 2018, 
J.R. Day, who runs Okie Polls, tweeted his final prediction of the 5th District race. He had Russell winning re-election, but by less than a percent. He predicted such a close race that he saw a horn upset as a very real possibility. It was kind of one of those deals where, you know, we started to do some models and we, we got into the, the game a little late uh, in 2018 because I think, I don't know, I don't want to admit that it wasn't, um, you know, you never want to say nothing is possible, but, you know, considering generally how Oklahoma's played out and how Russell's races had gone, you know, before that and then Langford before him and, you know, even back to Fallon. I mean, the, the district hadn't been uh, super competitive for a long time, but we started to get a sense from some of the people on the ground and some of the, the not silence, but Russell ran a very quiet sort of, uh, you know, campaign. I think, you know, not sure that he even realized that he was in any danger until it was too late. And so um, we really, when we started to see, the energy, and then as we got closer and closer, kind of the week or two leading up to the race, we really started to see um, the breakout of the people that were voting early and um, the sense that they had, and we thought, man, there might really be some some fire with the, the smoke we saw, and so, you know, it was kind of, a, it took us, it took us by surprise, and, you know, we had, uh, uh, horn within a shouting distance of uh, Russell there at the end. So it, it was surprising to see her win, but it wasn't as surprising as we thought. So Yeah. Well, and it was a big night for Democrats across the country, especially in some suburban districts that you maybe have some similarities to parts of the 5th District. But what, what went well for Horn in 2018? I mean, what was the voter makeup then that, uh, that put her over the top? I think part of what happened... Um, especially in Oklahoma County, although this is maybe changing a little bit, you didn't have a big, um, you didn't have a big name at the top of the ticket to um, sort of just have people come in and vote straight ticket uh, Republican and sort of bake in a whole bunch of uh, instant support for the Republican candidate, whoever that was. You know, Stitt was on the ballot in um, 18, but he wasn't Stitt didn't win Oklahoma County. He wasn't as popular. And uh, Pottawatomie and Seminole County are obviously in the fifth district too, but they're the makeup percentage of them is so small that they have an influence, but really and truly it's won and lost in Oklahoma County. And so, you know, just the general uh, democratic enthusiasm was up, you know, 2018, you know, people had two years of Donald Trump as president. And so they're, you know, uh, eager to voice their approval, or in this case, perhaps disapproval. And so they go and, you know, Horn ran a good campaign. She was visible. Um, she had some money to spend in Oklahoma County and in the district. And so, you know, arguably Horn was more visible than Steve Russell was during the campaign. And Russell was the incumbent, so maybe he didn't have to be. But I think that um, Russell, not necessarily to take anything away from Horn, but Russell didn't run a good campaign um, and didn't do a lot to help himself. And so um, without that sort of baked in support that he would get during a presidential election year, for example, he, he uh, you know, ultimately just came up short. 
So yeah. So what's different about 2020 for Horn? Well, so 2020 makes things harder for her in a lot of respects because, you know, we I just said that they didn't matter, but in this regard, they do. Seminole and Pottawatomie County, um, while maybe not as red as some of the other rural counties in Oklahoma, are probably going to give on the order of 60, 65, 70 percent of their vote to Donald Trump, regardless of who the of who the Democratic nominee is. It could change a little bit, but Horn's not going to peel very many voters off of that top line. Not In, in our opinion, she's not going to peel that many voters off of the, the top line voters, whether they vote straight ticket or they just go through um, the impact of having Donald Trump or any big name at the top of the, the ballot is really going to um, make it harder for her to overcome just sheer numbers. I mean, there's more registered Republicans, so you've got that um, already as a factor against you. So Horn's goal, really, what she's going to have to overcome is Oklahoma County has become more purpley. It's it's almost um, it's almost as if it's it. You, people talk about Texas turning purple, and Oklahoma County is a good parallel. The right candidate can turn it blue, but it's still this sort of red shade predominantly. And so we think that Trump won't compete as well in Oklahoma County. So if Horn can run the score up in Oklahoma County, she can kind of overcome these deficits that she's got other places. But that's hard to do, even even during a year where the Democrats were very energized, and like we said, Russell didn't run the best campaign. Horn still was only on the order of, we could pull it up, but I believe it's 53 to 54% that she got in Oklahoma County during you know a, a, a midterm year. So she's really going to have to do better than that. Uh, not necessarily better than the 53 or 54%, but that's 54% of the midterm year, whereas this would be 54% of the presidential year. And so that makes it um, just sheer numbers wise harder for her to uh, rack that score up, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and, and obviously a lot depends, as you said, on who her opponent is. And that's in the process of being decided right now, a Republican primary that has a, 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 a several candidates vying for that vying for that nomination. What are your thoughts on the Republican primary? What have you done any polling and, and what are you seeing in that race? We, we've tried to do some modeling on it. It's hard to it's hard to get uh, hard to get your arms around it because you know really and truly you're trying to find uh, the differences in these candidates, how they would appeal to different um, demographics, and where they would be more viable than others. Sometimes that's really obvious. With this, we've struggled to find a lot of differentiation between the candidates because. You know, with Barisi or Nice or Vice or Hill or any of the candidates, really, it's almost as if they uh, have the same lines for Horn. And we're not necessarily suggesting that those lines aren't effective. We're just suggesting that everybody seems to take the same stick. It's kind of, you know, cozy up to Trump, how close we can get to him, uh, say, you know, He's doing all these things. We agree with all these things. Horn is against all these things. Uh, Pelosi this, Trump that. And so it's hard to, it's not that there's not substance maybe behind some of the Republican candidates, but it's hard to, 
it's hard to make out because that's the that's the loudest drum I think they want to beat. And I don't necessarily think that that's a um, a bad strategy, especially considering what we just talked about as far as people voting straight ticket or coming to the ballot uh, in November just to vote for Donald Trump. And, you know, these guys having tied themselves to Trump. But um, it's really, I think that um, Bice has a lot of name recognition in Oklahoma County. You know, she got uh, publicity for, um, you know, cold beer in liquor stores for, you know, to be anecdotal about it. But people do recognize her name, especially locally, Barisi, whether it's a good or a bad connotation with the name. She's got a lot of um, name recognition. So I think that that's going to draw some people to it. Nobody, it seems, at least from our perspective, that nobody has head and shoulders um, separated themselves from the pack in terms of who really is the voter's preference, honestly. Yeah. And, and of course, it's a different game when you're running for a Republican primary versus then trying to win a general and, as you called it, you know, a purple district. Um, and, you know, not that I would expect a Republican nominee to abandon Trump. I don't expect that at all. Um, but uh, as you say, you're waving that Trump flag in a primary, which makes sense. And it'll be interesting to see what happens once you get to the general, especially when you're trying to maybe appeal to some Republican voters in some suburban communities that, you know, maybe supported Horn because they, they didn't necessarily have um, you know, a great opinion of the president. So based right now, and obviously a lot can change in the months to come, who do you feel like has the best chance of, of beating Horn in the general? Not necessarily who do you think has the best chance of winning the primary, but if you were a Republican strategist, who would you be wanting to see on the, uh, on the November ballot? I think you want Bice to win the primary if you're a Republican strategist with the best opportunity to beat Horn, because obviously... Barisi has other, uh, you know, other sort of baggage, even with the name recognition. So if you're Stephanie Bice, I think her appeal and her persona is easier for her to go kind of hard to the right to win the primary, but she has the chops and sort of the, you know, I don't think Stephanie Bice was generally regarded as one of the people on the fringes of the legislature. And so I think that would help her sort of reset the narrative and say, Hey, I, I support Trump, but I also, I also understand and I'm also um, moderate on these issues. You know, we can, I can understand where you would disagree with them and that's going to be important. I think people underestimate some of the importance to Horn, not that she won all of them, but like you mentioned, a lot of the, sort of middle-class suburban areas of the 5th District, your Edmonds, your Northwest Oklahoma cities, uh, parts of South Oklahoma City, areas that have historically been pretty Republican, moderated on Horn and gave her a lot of the vote, whether that's a, a Trump effect or whether that was coattails from Edmondson or whether Horn just appealed to them that much more. They, they need somebody to speak to them because we don't think that a Republican that doesn't speak to them will be able to win Oklahoma County because, you know, it's the purple effect. And we don't want to go so far as to say we don't think Trump will win Oklahoma County. A lot can change. But, you know, the, the writing is sort of there that, you know, the Democratic candidate may be more popular. And so that's sort of uh, 
there's a more opportunity for Republicans or independents or even Democrats who don't vote for the president to also vote for a more moderate uh, Republican. Stephanie Bice is a two-term state senator from Oklahoma's 22nd Senate District, which includes parts of Oklahoma and Canadian counties. Maybe best known for her leadership on liquor modernization laws, Bice was quickly mentioned as a 2020 candidate shortly after Horn's win. That may have been based part on geography, as Bice won re-election to the state Senate in decisive fashion, including in parts of her district that include the 5th District. But Bice has also become something of a maybe moderate Republican focused more on economics than social and ideological fights. Now, whether that's an image that she can maintain during a Republican primary has been a topic of conversation among many political observers. I recently sat down with Bice to discuss her congressional campaign, where she falls on the political spectrum, and why she thinks she is the best Republican to beat Horn. Why, why do you think you were at the top of some people's list? Why do you think you were seen as someone who, if Republicans, Republicans were going to win this seat back in two years, that you would be a, a candidate worth floating? Sure. I think that there's a couple of reasons. I've been able to tackle some really big, bold issues that no one had really um, been able to achieve in the past. So certainly alcohol modernization was one of those and being um, kind of on the forefront of that and, and a monumental change the vote was in 16, the implementation was in 18. It was a big deal for Oklahoma. And it wasn't really ever about alcohol. It was about jobs and economic development. So you see thousands of jobs that have been created because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, I've worked on things like criminal justice reform and um, education initiatives, including um, some uh, school uh, redu- reduction of testing and things like that. So maybe because I've covered the, I covered the gamut of issues, but I was also successful in a lot of those things that people sort of thought, hey, here is a, you know, up and coming, rising you know, female, young, not part of the political uh, scene for long, but is making an impact early and fast. And I think that maybe uh, got people's attention. Were you surprised on election night when Horn had won? Yes. Okay. Um, so you, you thought this was a safe, a safe seat? I think most people thought this was a safe seat. Um, I did have concerns, certainly, when I was knocking doors, because that summer I was up for re-election myself. And so I was out knocking doors in my own Senate district, which half of it is in the congressional district. And I was seeing quite a few Kinder Horn signs. And I think that concerned me. But I also thought that, you know, it's still a Republican district and people would get out and vote. What I learned not having a lot of political um, experience is that a midterm election cycle is also very different than a a presidential election cycle. Yeah. So what did you credit her win to? Did you just chalk it up to, you know, this was a good night? Or, um, you know, the party that doesn't have the White House, we've seen that commonly in these midterm elections. Um, or did you think that there was something about Horn's campaign that really appealed to, to voters in the district? I think there was a combination of things. Um, people were really focused here on the gubernatorial race. It was a contentious race. There was a lot of, I think, back and forth in that. And so I don't think there was as much attention being paid to the congressional race. Um, you know, give her credit. She also worked hard. She put together a really um, effective ground game. And some of the things that, that were um, being done hadn't been done here before. So I think that there was really a combination of, of different aspects that played into um, her winning that election. Yeah. I, I want to talk 
little bit more about Horn, but first, I mean, technically, we're in the primary phase right now. Correct. So uh, mm-hmm. we're still looking for a Republican nominee to who will eventually go up against uh, Representative Horn. So right now, that means you've got to win over Republican votes in the fifth district here. Um, why do you think you're the best candidate amongst this? Uh, what's becoming qu- a quite a crowded field of candidates sure. in the Republican primary? I think there's a couple things that I bring to the table that are unique. You know, I've been in sales and marketing for 20 years. I have owned my own business. I've partnered in a business, and I've also been part of the family business for almost a decade. So most of the candidates in this field sort of tout their business background, and I certainly have that as well. What I bring to the table, though, is I also have legislative experience. So I really have a combination of the two, and not only legislative experience, but successful legislative experience, conservative legislative experience. So when people ask, you know, do you support these conservative issues, I can point to a vote or uh, a bill that I've run and, and show that, yes, I, in fact, you know, can, can be seen as that um, stalwart conservative Republican that they may be looking for in a, in a primary race. Yeah. Uh, you talk about your legislative experience, which is still ongoing. I mean, you're still a sitting state senator. I, I start, uh, I start yeah. session soon. And I, I want to, you know, I've got, I'm sitting down with a, a, a current state senator, so I want to ask you a little bit about the legislative session as well. But um is it is that completely a strength for you or I mean we commonly see in these primaries there's talk about like well I'm I'm the outsider or I'm the someone coming in the legislature as a whole isn't necessarily the most popular body in Oklahoma um, now you just talked about your reelection so it's different in individual districts when you talk to people about their own representatives and senators but um, is, is there a challenge to running off your your experience in legislature or have you found that no this is a, a big asset that I can point to I think there's both you know when I was uh, when I was running for re-election in 2018 I was fortunate to be re-elected by the largest number of votes of any state legislator in Oklahoma uh, I had um, over 24,000 people that supported my re-election so you know I was making votes that they were they were happy with and they they supported that by going to the polls and re-electing me I think that as I say to many people, you're never going to agree with a politician 100% of the time. Uh, I've been married 24 years now. My husband's a fantastic guy, but we don't agree 100% of the time. And so you really have to find somebody that you can coalesce behind, that you can have conversations with. I have many constituents I've developed great relationships with, and they'll call me and say, I really don't like this particular bill, and I'll explain, you know, why I'm supporting it, and they'll say, okay, I, I get your perspective. I don't necessarily agree, but I appreciate you being forthright and giving us that insight. So I think it can be a benefit in a lot of ways because you are able to develop those relationships um, and and have a voice, but, you know, then people will turn around and look at it and say, well, you voted on X, Y, and Z, and we're not happy with that. You know, we have to think through, I think, do you want somebody with absolutely no experience that's never done it? Or do you want somebody that maybe has a taste of what it's like and can make things happen um, and, and, and really be effective? And I think that we're rewarding inexperience in some ways rather than rewarding experience, even though you may not agree with every single decision. Yeah. Like I said earlier, we're in the primary, so you're running against other Republicans. But so much of the race is already uh, about uh, Congresswoman Horn. Um, I know you and other candidates – um, as is, as it is to be expected, I mean, you, you'll you'll address votes that she's made um, or decisions that she's taken, and a lot of your supporters, a lot of your constituency, or a lot of the Republican primary voters are focused on wanting to win, take the seat back, um, and her support uh, or lack of support for the president is a big deal amongst Republican voters. Um, I know you've you've had you've been asked that and 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 expressed your opinion. I mean, of course, you've expressed your disagreement with her and, and backing Nancy Pelosi when she was 
uh, first elected and then Horn's vote in favor of the impeachment of President Trump. But besides those two, which are a lot to get a lot of focus amongst Republican voters, um, what are some other votes or stances that she's taken during her time in office that you um, have, have would, would take exception with? Sure. So I think one of the ones that's also been discussed that I think is important is the opposition to expansion of drilling across uh, uh, on the coasts as well as in Alaska. Um, those are important things. You know, in, in Oklahoma, we live and die by oil and gas. And her vote, she said that she did not want to um, vote for expansion because she felt like it could be an environmental impact. But the reality is that We've worked for decades to become energy independent in this country. And that in energy independence actually provides some national security um, to the country as well as lets us dictate, you know, um, how we're able to price oil in, in the U.S. So preventing us from continuing to allow for those expansion issues or those expansion opportunities um, creates a challenge. And if you go back and look, even Dan Boren who was a Democrat, supported the expansion of drilling. Um, so I think that was a little surprising to folks that are that are in an oil and gas state. Well, let's talk about um, kind of that position towards uh, the environment. I mean, is that, I mean, obviously you say, hey, this is an important industry. I want to support jobs. I want to support energy ind independence. Um, is, it, is it wrong, though, to take that kind of view of like, well, hey, maybe we need to be reconsidering what we do in light of some of the things we've seen um, with the changing climate. I mean, what's your, your stance on that? I think that a lot of uh, most oil and gas companies are very sensitive to the fact that, you know, they don't want to be an impact, negative impact to the environment. And they're doing the things that are necessary to protect the environment. So to say that, no, I'm not willing to do that because I think that it could impact climate change, I think is a little short-sighted. They're already trying to address those issues. I mean, you've seen um, conversations around the lesser prairie chicken mm -hmm. you know, that, that came up uh, several years ago and the impact that drilling in certain parts of Oklahoma had. And they were able to resolve those things in a very um, successful way that that made sure that we were doing making the right decisions uh, for the state, but also doing the things we need to do to protect the climate and the environment. Are there steps that Congress should be taking right now when it comes to protecting the environment? I mean, I know that you think that oil and gas is, is doing its part, and maybe that's not the focus for you. Where would your where would be your focus on this area, on this issue? On on the on on climate change. Yeah. Climate change. You know, I, I think there's a lot of things that can be looked at. That's not something that I've been focused on. I, you know, I really try to look at some of the things that I have a little bit more um, expertise in, and that's not necessarily one of them that I do. I think we can be sensitive to that, but um, sometimes we want to go overboard. These conversations around the new green deal and other things are just not realistic at all. Yeah. How would you assess Horn's time in office in terms of on the political spectrum? I mean, of course, I, I guess you would probably say that you think she's too liberal for your district because you're a Republican, she's a Democrat. Sure. So that probably <laughs> just meets that definition. Um, but, uh, you know, not you know, besides the two parties, I mean, members fall on different parts of the spectrum. Um, even some of her own party have sometimes expressed a little bit of frustration that they think she's kind of too moderate. I mean, wh where do you think she's fallen on that line? Well, I don't know. I think... You know, she really sold herself as a moderate when she ran and, and didn't really define um, her position on a lot of things. She talked very general, generally about education, about health care. Um, so, but, you know, as you pointed out earlier, her first, first vote was for Pelosi. And I think we were a little surprised at that. Candidly, most Oklahomans don't think that Nancy Pelosi really represents Oklahoma. So maybe that was a, a shock to the system. I think that she's walking a line, you know, trying to find things that are maybe not as partisan to focus on. Military, that's been a big um, discussion point for her. 
And so I think it, it's a challenging time, certainly, when you're a Democrat and you're in a red state um, and you have a president that's going through this impeachment process. It, it's difficult to be um, too far uh, to the left because you're, you have people see people already that are pretty upset. Yeah. So why do you think voters wanted a Democrat then? I mean, this is a Republican district still. It is trending more Democratic. You know, why did voters, presumably some Republicans, uh, supported her election? Why do you think they wanted a Democrat in office? You know, uh, that's a great question. Uh, maybe change, maybe something different. Maybe they didn't really know what she stood for and thought, hey, I'll give someone else an opportunity. Um, and now that we've kind of seen some of the votes that she's taken, uh, people are pretty fired up. Yeah. One of the things they're fired up about is the president <laughs> on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Trump didn't win the Oklahoma primary. That was a crowded, crowded race. Cruz, yeah. Well, yeah. Was Cruz. What was your take on, on the Republican primary then? And um, at what point did you become a supporter of the president? So I think that um, it's kind of similar to the Democratic primary right now. You have too many candidates, and it's difficult to really wade through that. Um, you know, I did not support um, the president early on. I had actually picked a different candidate and was pretty vocal about that early on. But when it was clear that President Trump was going to be the candidate, you have no choice to get on, but to get on board because he's going to represent you. And I think that the, the good thing about him is that he really is looking to put this country first, whether it is immigration, whether it is trade deals, you know, whatever the topic may be. Um, his approach is a little different and maybe not um, you know, what everybody is expecting, but he's doing what people ask him to do. And I think that's the, the key. But how would you characterize his his conduct related to the impeachment, so related to Ukraine. Are you comfortable with the way that he acted? Do you think that he act? Do you think he violated the law in any way, or just kind of how would you characterize his actions, particularly right now with with Ukraine? Look, I read the transcript, and I saw nothing in that transcript that would lead me to believe that he had done something that was an impeachable offense. And so this, um, and, and I believe that Democrats have really been looking for a way to remove him from office since the day he was sworn into office. You know, we we suffered through the Mueller report, you know, um, time that was sort of deemed, wait, maybe there's nothing there. You know, then we pivot to this. And, you know, I think it, at the end of the day, people are frustrated and they want Congress to get back to work and do the work of the American people and focus on the important issues like you know, economic development and jobs, like health care. Uh, immigration, border security, the things that really matter. So we've we've pivoted away from that over the last couple of months because the focus has been totally about the impeachment process. And there's an election coming up. You know, if you're not happy, then you have the opportunity to vote to choose a different candidate. Yeah. I want to ask you about something that you and I had, had talked about a few weeks ago. I went to one of those events and we were, we were talking afterwards. And I was uh, talking to you about some of the things I said at the top of this interview about you know, some of the reasons why some had mentioned you as a candidate to go in, in 2020. And some people have used the word moderate. And we were just kind of unpacking that word. And what does that mean? Um, and I'm not saying I would necessarily label you as a moderate. Um, but you, I don't want to say you took offense to it. I'm very kind in your I response. Did, I did not take offense to but it. You, you <laughs> but you said, like, I don't know if I, if I, I definitely don't think that I see myself as that way. And we were kind of talking about what does that mean? What does that mean to you? I mean, you said that you felt like Horn was trying to position herself as a moderate early on, especially um, a, I mean, do you see yourself as a moderate? And, and B, why do you think some people would see you as a moderate? I guess I'll put it that way. That's a great question. So I think, no, I don't see myself as a moderate. I really see myself as a, a conservative Republican. And I, ha I always have been. I've actually been a Republican since the first uh, day I was able to register to vote. And I think that maybe um, part of that is because of the alcohol modernization that I championed. You know, a lot of my colleagues, because of their um, faith, 
we're not um, we're not engaging in that conversation. And you know, I've always joked that I'm Catholic and I drink wine on Sunday, so um, I wanted others to have the same yeah. opportunity. And so I took on that challenge, although it wasn't really about alcohol; it was about economic development and jobs. I think people painted me in a in a fashion that may have been a little bit more on the moderate side, and maybe because that particular legislation catered to a different demographic than your traditional Republican voter. Yeah. And so by um, really embracing that and trying to make those significant changes, that it um, people maybe looked at me in a different way than, than they had in the past. While Republicans will spend the next several months deciding on a nominee, Democrats have their candidate and believe she is focused on the types of issues that 5th District voters care most about. Minutes after her kickoff rally at the Tower Theater, Horn visited with me for a few minutes to discuss the coming election. Ben? Oh, there's Ben. Hey. A little too loud out there hey. for you, I'm Come sure. How are you? Good to, to see you. you. Good to see you, too. Appreciate your time. Just yeah, of course. Of course. So a big theme right after your election was this big upset victory. You can kind of talk about that today. Yeah. Do you still feel like you're the underdog, though? I mean, you're the incumbent now. Or are you still kind of running from that position? Or just kind of what's the style of this? Well, I think it's the opposite side of the coin. We went from being a biggest upset to, to one of the biggest targets in the country. Uh, and, and so we've got to continue to work hard to meet people where they are, talk to them about the issues that are most important to them, and really talk about the work that we're doing, how we are actively working hard for Oklahomans to address the skyrocketing cost of prescription drugs, that we pass the Tenants Bill of Rights to fight for our service members and their families, that we were successful in getting 12 weeks of paid parental leave for all federal employees through the NDAA, through the Defense Authorization Bill, that we were able to get the government funded and fighting for issues that are important on a day-to-day -day basis to Oklahomans, in addition to doing things like passing the USMCA, being a voice that can bring people together. And we know we're being targeted by big outside dark money groups who have already begun dumping money in and, and laying out fa false ideas about who, who I am and the work that we're doing. So we're going to continue to work hard to show Oklahomans who we are, what we're fighting for, and that'll take us uh, successfully over the finish line, I think, yeah. in November. There's a Republican primary going on right now, but your name comes up a lot, and, yeah. and you talk about that advertising and trying to paint yeah. a picture of who you are as, yeah. as in lockstep with maybe an East Coast liberal establishment. Yeah. How do you describe yourself to the voters? I, I describe myself to voters as I'm, I'm fighting for every single Oklahoman. If somebody asked me what kind of Democrat I am, I'd like to say I'm a Carl Albert Democrat. You know, Carl Albert is the only Oklahoman uh, to ever rise to the rank of speaker as this as the most senior elected official to ever come from Oklahoma he was known for his pragmatism for reaching out across the aisle and for putting the needs of our communities and the best interests of our nation above party and that's exactly what I do day in and day out to fight for Oklahomans whose voices haven't been heard to take my time to make the right decisions and I have on a number of occasions, pushed back against my party when I felt like the decisions weren't right for Oklahoma, and I will continue to do that. I don't think extreme solutions get us further. It doesn't solve the problems. We've got a whole lot more in common than we have that is different, but we've got to be willing to focus on that. That's why I reach out across the aisle. I work on bipartisan solutions and will continue to do that. And any other insinuation is flatly untrue. 
Yeah. I'm going to keep working hard for Oklahomans because it's the right thing to do, and uh, that's that's where our focus will be. Yeah. Finally, you talked about yeah. drug prices as being a core issue. Yeah. Healthcare obviously is yeah. pretty big. Uh, that's going to be a big topic this year with a presidential yeah. election, yeah. Democratic nominee right now. The, the leader in that yeah. has, a, has a pretty aggressive plan of Medicare for yeah. All. Where do you kind of fall on that issue? And then where would you like to see change with the healthcare? It's a complicated question, but... It really is. Well, I oppose uh, a Medicare for All solution that wouldn't allow people to keep and maintain their health insurance. I don't think all or nothing solutions are the way that we fix the important, challenging, and complicated issues surrounding our healthcare system. We have to do things that are smart. We have to protect people's access that have uh, pre-existing conditions like that came through the ACA. We have to make sure they don't lose care. We have to hold the drug companies and the insurance companies accountable. And we need to do things like here in the state, expanding Medicaid so 200,000 people who currently fall through the cracks can get insurance and get the care they need. These all or nothing solutions on either end of the spectrum don't actually get us there. These problems are complicated and we've got to be thoughtful about how we address them. I think one of the, the other areas where that's pretty clear is in education. We have to address our student loan debt crisis. That's something I have and will continue to work on, but we don't have to wipe out all the student loan debt or give everything away for free. What we have to do is give people realistic pathways to get the education and job and skills training they need to succeed and thrive. And that's what I'm gonna keep talking to people about because that's where most of us live. We don't live in the edges. We live in our day-to-day -day worlds that, that know that we wanna work hard. That's what Oklahomans do. And we want a, a fair shot at getting uh, getting to a place that's better and whatever that looks like and and we have to make sure that the systems are there in order to make that possible. Thank you so much, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. You can find previous episodes in your favorite podcast player. Just search for Listen Frontier and subscribe. You can also find our work at readfrontier.org. It's the support of readers that makes the journalism of the frontier possible. If you like this episode or value the reporting of the frontier, I'd invite you to consider making a donation. Even a recurring donation of $5 a month goes a long way to support our team of reporters in Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Got a story idea or tip? You can find contact information at readfrontier.org. For the frontier, I'm Ben Felder. I'll be back next week for another episode of Listen Frontier. Thanks for listening.